everyone. Thank you for listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. If you're listening on any of my uh, podcast platforms like Anchor or Spotify, if you can subscribe, that also helps me out. And if you would like to be able to hear the extra episode every month, um, you can check out my Patreon. Today, I'm super excited to be having a guest that I'm going to be interviewing. Her name is Melissa, and I've been watching her videos on TikTok for a while and really learning a lot from them. So I'm super excited to get to pick her brain today. So I'm going to read her bio and then jump into it. So... Melissa is a licensed therapist in private practice in the state of South Carolina. She's been practicing for 17 years this year and specializes in working with adults with complex trauma and with couples. She's certified in EMDR and she can provide consultation for therapists pursuing EMDR certification. She has several advanced trainings that inform her work and some of her favorites include attachment-focused EMDR, somatic experiencing, internal family systems, and emotionally focused therapy, to name a few. She can be found on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Melissa Park Says, and I will also link her websites in the blurb so you guys can find her easily. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I'm so excited. This is great. I've been enjoying, I love your content as well. It really aligns with a lot of my work. So I am more than thrilled to be here and to join you. you. Awesome. So yeah, I would love if we could just start with you kind of giving a description to everyone about what EMDR is and how it works. I I know a little bit about it, but I want to hear from Mm -hmm. someone who actually does it, what EMDR is. Yes. So um, I'll kind of highlight some of the important pieces. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's kind of a mouthful, Um, but it is a evidence-based model. So it's, that means it's just been highly researched and there's proven outcomes and it's treatment for those with trauma, complex trauma, a myriad of other issues. We've learned that EMDR can help for several, several things symptoms of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and and so on and so forth. And the important thing here is it's based on a model or a theory that says that within all of us is this natural information processing system where we may take distressing experiences, distressing events, and we process them. We have a way of processing them. We talk about it, think about it, feel about it. We might dream about it. And We process that by way where we end up taking the elements of that experience and it is stored in our explicit memory. So we end up with this coherent narrative and often that narrative is something like that was then, this is now. And sometimes we might even have some positive cognitions that go with that. Like I'm safe now, it's over, or I am good, I survived, lots of other things. And so with that theory or that model, we can also understand, and what it says is that any current symptoms that we have are due to unprocessed memories from the past. And so it's when, as it relates to trauma, we can say that we, our nervous system experienced uh, a time when things were too much, too soon, too much for too long, too little for too long, and that natural information processing system that we all have failed. And not because we are bad, it's because the trauma, it's, it's because it was too much. And as a result, our beautiful nervous system comes along and takes the element of, elements of that experience of that old memory 
and fragments the pieces. And, and those pieces are now stored in implicit memory or our unconscious memory. And so all of our current symptoms then are understood to be a result of the unprocessed experience that pop up in our present moment. Um, and that's a really important piece of EMDR because what we know about EMDR then is that we can say that it is a therapy that can help us assimilate or, or, or um, associate those dissociated parts. Hmm. And it does that by um, you know, several, several different ways that we can do that, but uh, the, well, not several ways, but the most important piece is that we set up a state for the system to do what it needed to do or wanted to do in hmm. the moment that it couldn't do because it was overwhelmed. And what was that that it wanted to do in the moment? It wanted to process the experience and use its natural information processing system to move all of the elements of that experience into explicit memory so that we have a coherent story, a coherent narrative, mm. and we can move through. We can say that was in the past and this is now, and I can take maybe some learnings from that experience and move forward into my right. present day and into my future. And I do not have a reliving of that old experience right. because that's what we know what trauma is, right? It's a reliving right. in the present but these elements from the past are popping up. Yeah. So when a memory is fully processed and associated, you won't relive it. You can think of it from kind of the present safety of the moment, but you wouldn't necessarily have like a trigger or a flashback associated with that memory. Well, you might have a trigger, but it's not going to become a reliving. A real right. right. We might be right. right. That's right. That's right. We won't have the emotional flashback. We won't. We might be triggered, but we won't. We won't be. It, we, it won't be taking us over to the point where we're hijacked. Right. Someone might get triggered, right. but they would still kind of be able to remain like rooted in the present moment exactly. and be like, I'm safe. And I'm thinking about exactly. this thing that was hard instead of like, exactly. it feels like it's happening again. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly right. And cool. we do that. We do that by, like I said, setting up a state um, in the therapy. We set up a state where we can um, create the conditions for the natural processing system to do what it wanted to do. And, um, you know, the, the results are, you know, less distressed over the memories. Again, we have the experience that comes together and it's more, uh, we have that coherent narrative. We have new positive beliefs about ourselves and about the world. Um, we have from the IFS perspective, we have harmony within our parts. Uh, it's, it's just a, a wonderful thing that yeah. results. Yeah. And IFS is internal family systems for, for people listening. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Wow. Well, that was a great description. Thank you so much. I've never really heard, uh, all of this, all of those pieces of it before. Um, so what I've learned from watching your videos is that there isn't just one way to approach EMDR and it seems like you can kind of use EMDR in collaboration with some other theories. Um, so I would love to hear about, I've, I've seen you post about attachment focused EMDR. So I'd like to know what that is and how attachment theory ties into EMDR for you. Yes. <laughs> Those are like neuroscience, attachment it's like my favorite things. I just get excited thinking about it. Yay. So I'm going to kind of spell this out a little bit, how it helps me. And, and maybe this might help you and your listeners too. So if we take EMDR's 
like standard protocol and um, we move, it's a phase treatment. There's eight phases to the treatment and we move through all those phases of treatment. We can really help people that have like single incident traumas, for example, or um, those people that have a really strong sense of self, they know themselves, they have a strong sort of sense of uh, ego or self state in internal family systems. And they have clear connections to what their present triggers are and what's feeding those present triggers. So those past memories, they're clear on what that is. Mm -hmm. When we have all that, EMDR's standard protocol works really, really well. And it's great. And sometimes for complex trauma, we have that standard protocol. But when we have complex trauma, we got a different story, don't right. we? We have, or we have developmental trauma. We have those with these insecure attachment adaptations. And we know that due to those deficits from childhood, they have parts of them that, um, that carry the pain from those unmet needs from childhood. And we know that they have an internalized negative sense of self instead of that like strong sense of self. And so we have that, we have a presentation that might be diffuse, which means, you know, let's say they come in and um, they have tons of trick present triggers and they have also have some memories, but there's, it's like this web that's sort of interwoven and we can't figure out what goes with what. And there's these themes from within these memories and these, these triggers themes about, um, I'm not safe or it's my fault or, um, you know, I I'm bad, all these things. And it's really hard to kind of piece all those things together. So the presentation is very diffuse. And then, you know, we might have also with those with complex trauma and developmental trauma where we can't access memory networks. They can't remember. Um, and so with all those things, we have got to use, we have got to be creative in using EMDR. And this is where the attachment focus piece comes in. Um, the attachment focus therapist is going to conceptualize the case differently the attachment focus therapist is going to really hone in on what are these deficits? What are these things that this client was missing in childhood that created these adaptations and they're showing up in relationships in ways that now make sense based on not getting those needs met. And so we're gonna see that and hone in on that. And we're gonna know the relationship between attachment and trauma. And we're also going to really understand the importance of going back and processing those experiences that created the adaptation in the first place. And the, so the why, why are they avoidant? Why do they have the avoidant adaptation? Why do they have the anxious adaptation, the disorganized adaptation? And through the attachment focus lens, I'm gonna, I'm gonna realize the importance of that. Then I might not just focus on some recent trigger that they're struggling with, with that's associated with depression, I'm going to tra trace that back to, oh, there must be an attachment need that's, that we need to focus on here. And that's the, that's the part that I love so much about that. And this is, of course, the main, um, you know, the, the main client that I work with, those that have attachment wounds and yeah. or complex PTSD. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. So it sounds like you're, you're mapping out someone's kind of attachment experiences as part of the preparation, but is that before you do EMDR kind of getting to understand their attachment history as a way to kind of plan the right way to approach it? 
Yes. And now, of course, being that I put myself out there as a detachment therapist, more likely than not, the clients that end up at my door, like we already know that this is something that we're going to be focusing on. Right. 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 But yes, yes, this is going to be something that we are really working on right from the get go. And there's other ways that we end up sort of, um, you know, honing in or even using a modified protocol. I use the word standard protocol in the beginning there when we were talking about like single incident traumas or whatnot. There's modifications that we might use too in attachment focused EMDR. But essentially what we want in EMDR is we want to help the information processing system. We want to give it another go, right? We want to say, hey, you didn't didn't get what you need back then. Let's set it up so that we can do this thing again. Let's renegotiate any trauma. Let's help you with any thwarted trauma responses. Yeah. Um, Let's let's, um, reduce your stress and create some positive cognitions. But with the attachment focused EMDR, we want to, we want all of those things and we want the client to come to know their, their authentic sense of self mirrored through us so that they realize who they really are, that they are worthy of love and belonging. And that's what they did not get as a child. So we're yeah. setting up secure, secure attachment. Yeah. So they're getting that like reparative experience through the rapport, you know, in the relationship with the therapist, which kind of creates that security where they're going to be able to process those memories. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting because one thing that I've had people ask me a lot before is like, um, I think a standard thing for a lot of EMDR therapists is to do like a trauma timeline, right? Where it's like kind of what's the timeline of these different traumatic events. I know the, um, a couple of the times that I saw EMDR therapy, EMDR therapist as a client, I was asked to do like a trauma timeline of kind of like not going super into detail, but just being like, these are like major events that I can remember that need to be reprocessed. And it really was difficult for me because I don't have that many, I don't have like standard PTSD at all. I have complex trauma and it is all very like interwoven. um, And there aren't a whole lot of like standout incidences that I can be like, yep, that is the bad thing that happened that caused my trauma, right? It was like very complex and ongoing and relational like very attachment based and so I yeah I feel like that was one of the reasons that I struggled with that and I've heard other people say how am I supposed to like know what memories to process if I have amnesia right or yeah if I if I have very like unclear foggy memories of my childhood because of the complex trauma so it seems like this is a different approach to kind of deal with some of those hiccups that people might come across oh my goodness I almost like like I cringe at the thought of someone coming in with like you like we talked about this diffuse presentation and having them like go through a list talk about talk about pushing them outside of their window of tolerance like right <laughs> like that is and, and that's what we don't want right we don't want re-traumatization yeah at all yes, yeah yes and so with with this too you know when we're dealing with complex cases one of the pieces that's really important especially in um, you know, I've been trained by a couple of different people with attachment-focused EMDR, but Laurel Parnell is, has it coined attachment-focused EMDR. And, um, you know, she's, I follow a lot of her work and with her, she brings in something a little bit special into the um, protocol where she spends a lot of time with resource tapping and creating 
um, several attachment figures in the preparation phase where we're actually imagining figures that maybe we um, to, to, to not replace, but to, to enhance and to help us um, experience those attachment needs to be met when we enter into the trauma processing phase of EMDR. What would be an example of like attachment figures that someone could mm-hmm. build? No, so, well, there, the three that, that she and I, you know, use really regularly would be a protective figure, a um, wise figure, and a nurturing figure. Okay. And so, and, and we, you know, we, we tap into that, that prefrontal cortex and we really utilize a client's imagination in this, in this piece where, you know, we say, think about, a, think about a nurturing figure. You don't have to imagine receiving the nurturing yourself, but when you think of nurturing, what do you think of? It could be even somebody that you've experienced in your life. Could it be a neighbor down the street that maybe, you know, gave you some love and care when you were a kid, or could it be completely fictional? Like, oh, I saw my my kids and I were watching Frozen 2 the other day and the mother in Frozen 2 the way she just picks up Anna as one of the little girls and just holds her in her arms like I melted watching that Hmm. that I was like oh my god I could tap that in as a resource for myself it was just so beautiful yeah yeah so just some some sort of kind of sense of what it feels like to be protected cared for and secure that can kind of be like conjured while you're reprocessing trauma And, you know, you said sense, like a lot of trauma recovery is being able to experience a felt sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole idea with a lot of the polyvagal theory, which I also see you talk about a lot, is this idea that like felt safety is the goal with trauma recovery. And not only is it the goal with trauma recovery, but it's the foundation of a lot of therapies being effective, right? Because you're you're not able to access the same level of learning and processing and growing when you're like stuck in a, you know, in a state of survival and like a hyper aroused or hypo aroused nervous system state. Um, So I would love to hear you talk more about like how all these theories connect for you. So like polyvagal theory and attachment and then internal family systems, which these are like some of my favorite theories. And I just would love to hear you talk about how they all connect for you because I'm I'm so interested. Yeah, that's awesome. We're definitely on the same page. I love all of those all of those theories and all. And I I see it. I see it come together for me in in like just a a lot of case conceptualization, like how I see the client and how I see how how much they make sense. You know that that beautiful way that they make sense. That non pathological lens. Um, That's how I see a lot of those theories come to life for me and how I conceptualize my cases. But I also utilize a lot of the theories in that preparation phase of EMDR. And so many times on my comments, on my video, on my videos of EMDR, not not all the time, but some of them I see sprinkled in like, you know, EMDR was terrible for me. I was re-traumatized or I was, and, and this is really, this is really why we want to spend that time making sure that we are prepared for the trauma processing work right. and we spend that time in the preparation phase and this is where a lot of those theories come together for me because one of the pieces of um, prep- preparing for trauma processing work is I want to make sure that a client can experience a state change if we're thinking about polyvagal theory so um, can I be sure that the client can go from 
overactivation and sympathetic arousal back up to their safe, connected space of their ventral energy. Right. Can I be sure that they can do that somehow with through breathing techniques or grounding techniques, whatever, whatever the technique is, can I be sure that they can make a state change? That would be how polyvagal comes in, certainly, um, a huge piece of it. And, and into phase two, internal family systems, let me tell you, if we're dealing with somebody with complex trauma, we are dealing with somebody that has dissociated parts where the parts inside, and, and of course, dissociation is on the continuum. So, right. you know, we, we all the way down here on this end, we might have DID, but either way we have people with, they have, they have parts inside and these parts are not in harmony. And so we have to make sure that we um, are in good standing with those parts, especially the parts that are from the IFS perspective, the managers, um, that most definitely, and those firefighters, the ones that do not want the vulnerable parts, those exiles to, to come up. So we have to make sure that we are doing something to befriend those parts. And that's yeah. where another piece of IFS might come into like um, the, the phase two of trauma processing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so into this. I love everything you're saying. Um, I love what you said at the very beginning about just seeing things through the lens of like people make sense because that is a huge thing for me too. That's what I base so much Ugh. of my work off of. And that was such a huge realization for me that changed like the entire course of my recovery was like realizing that I made sense. It was such a relief. Same. And so now I want like everyone to know you make sense. And I, I think that's one of the things that I love most about like doing this kind of work with people is being able to like help create that cohesive story of like, no, this all really makes sense. Like these different yeah. parts of you are all working to protect you. And so, yeah, I can see how internal family systems and polyvagal theory both go really well with that idea of like, we can understand all of these reactions that we have and these emotions and these like seemingly contradicting parts of ourselves are all serving this purpose and kind of bringing that into awareness um, and being able to have yeah. compassion and like appreciation for that. Yeah, because we really, we, we want to have compassion, but sometimes it's really hard when we don't understand why we're doing what we're doing. So that is such a pivotal, important piece before we can start and before we can end up having compassion for ourselves when we, when we realize that we make sense. And I, I agree with you. I, I also, it changed my life when I realized, whoa, I make so much sense. Now I know why I'm showing up in relationships the way that I'm showing up. Now I know why my, my home away from home is my dorsal vagal um, experience, like and my dorsal vagal complex. Now yeah. it makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. It yes. really is a relief, um, which is why I think, yeah, just learning about it can be so empowering for people, even though it's not the same as therapy. It's not therapy, but it is a really great step towards like that self-knowledge and that relief of being sure. like, I make sense. Other people get it. So, um, yes. so in terms of that idea of like people getting re-traumatized by jumping into EMDR too too quickly. That's something that I've heard a lot too, you know, people who said that it, it triggered them. And I remember the brief time that I did EMDR, like my therapist uh, went a little bit through kind of like, you know, if you have been recently suicidal or if you have substance abuse problems, like, you know, do you think that doing this might trigger, trigger you in like a negative way? 
but it was pretty brief. I don't think I had a very good EMDR therapist. And I think the main thing that kind of went wrong is that I didn't really feel that comfortable with her or like build rapport with her. She was like a little bit judgmental or at least I felt like a little bit criticized by her. And so it made it impossible to relax. And so when she would be trying to get me to like go reprocess, I, it was like that there was a wall up, like I couldn't do it. And now in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, because why would I have wanted to go into such a vulnerable place with this woman that I feel like is kind of judging me (laughs) you know what I mean like there has to be a comfortable relationship I think for that to even be a possibility absolutely absolutely 100% and that's why I just you know I in my initial training you know it was more the standard protocol more um, less focus on the attachment piece of course they talk about safety and the nervous system and whatnot but it was when I happened upon this attachment focus piece that I was like now we're talking. Like yeah. This just hits home for me. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's, it's just, it's so important It is for healing. Yeah. How long would you say is typical for you to spend in like a preparatory phase with someone before you guys start reprocessing? I'm sure it varies, but what's like the range you tend to see? Yeah, it, it really does vary. Um, because, you know, if I have, it's just such a case by case basis. I mean, if I have somebody who is more on the, this spectrum on the, on the end down, down here and more towards DID, then I'm going to be spending a lot more time in phase two versus somebody who doesn't resource dissociation and has less harmony with their parts. Um, so it's, it's really hard to give like a, a, a clear picture on that, but you know what the thing is too, is that some people say like, when are we going to do this EMDR thing? We do. I start EMDR. If somebody is coming to me for EMDR, I start right away. There are eight phases of EMDR and Mm. part of EMDR is also the assessing for dissociation, the history taking, the treatment planning. I mean, that's all EMDR as well. It's not just the bilateral stimulation, moving the eyes or tapping or, or the tones. I know that that's what EMDR is known for. Um, but that's not all of what EMDR is. There's all these other components too. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I want to, um, I want to go back to what you were talking about with like the dissociation of parts, because this is another theory that I've been learning more about is this idea of like structural dissociation that is found Mm -hmm. in like CPTSD, um, BPD, and then obviously like DID in more severe cases. I think a lot of trauma and dissociative disorders likely have, you know, components of structural dissociation. And so people get kind of confused, like when I talk about it, because I think, yeah, like DID and what you see of DID in the media is what a lot of people think of when you hear like parts or, or this sort of thing. So can you talk a little bit more about like what that means and, and what that looks like for someone with, with CPTSD to have structural dissociation and to have dissociated parts of themselves? Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of goes back to that, that idea that we, our nervous system, when it's overwhelmed, beautifully comes in and helps us and fragments pieces of the experience. And sometimes with that fragmenting, the, the, the parts of us are created that hold these different elements of the experience. And ultimately what we want is we want, um, you know, we want communication between the parts. We want harmony between the, par- the parts, but the, the more pervasive abuse is, the more um, 
the more difficult time the nervous system has with processing it, it's almost like the walls become thicker between the parts and there is no communication. And so down on this end more, when you have that dissociative identity disorder, there is literally, the walls are so thick, there is no communication at all. And in fact, we might have we might have situations where there's the amnesia and there's switching where I don't even realize that a part of me was present at this time. And that's more on the extreme end of things. But when we're like, you know, like I said in the beginning, in terms of complex PTSD, we are going to have to be fluent in parts work. Um, there's just no, no way around it. We have to get permission from those protector parts or from the parts that really are terrified to let those um, more fragile, vulnerable experiences or parts come up. Right. Um, and, and we have to spend time doing that. So for example, <clears throat> just to kind of put it in like context a little bit for myself, when you look at something like disorganized this or disorganized attachment, where there are these like seemingly contradicting urges for both closeness and like really fear of closeness and this kind right. of like, uh, would that kind of be an example of what those, how, of how Absolutely. those parts like manifest in CPTSD? Like part of me really yes. wants closeness and love and part of me is like, no, that's not safe. I need to stay far away from everybody. Right, right. What a biological paradox. Like what a, like it's, it's, it's awful. My, my fear system is saying run and my attachment system is saying get soothing, get help. Right. And that, that kind of experience creates such tonic immobility that the nervous system has no other choice, but to completely shut off. And, and like I said, fragment, I mean, that is just a it is, a, it's, you can't win. Right. There's right. no way to win in that yeah. situation. And, and, with and so, that, yes, that would be a beautiful, that would be a beautiful example of how something like this is, is created and how something like this happens. Yeah. Yeah. One of the ways that I've heard structural dissociation and like fragmentation described is that we have to develop these parts that are functional that can, you know, carry us through our day-to-day -day life. I've heard them talked as like normal, par yeah, apparently, apparently normal parts. Normal. Right. I know. <laughs> apparently normal because it's kind of like eh, it's debatable. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so yes. we, we have these like apparently normal parts, you know. I mean, even as a child, thinking about a kid living in an abusive household who has to be able to go to school and like say hello That's and right. act like things are normal. Um, and then you also have to have these parts at the same time that are holding and dealing with whatever chaos, dysfunction, abuse, neglect, you know, whatever is happening in these other yeah. contexts. And so there's kind of this natural compartmentalization that we all have, right? Like even, you know, mm -hmm. any healthy adult compartmentalizes which parts of them are available when they're with their partner versus at work. But you get this really like extreme compartmentalization under stress where there's that's a part right. of you that's oriented towards functioning and then a part of you that's oriented, you know, towards dealing with this trauma and how I've right. heard that kind of conceptualized in CPTSD or, or how it can show up in CPTSD from what I understand and please um, elaborate slash correct me on this but like you you can kind of with CPTSD have times that you're like yeah I'm going to work I'm like I seem like I'm a functional person 
But then there's these times where you're really re-traumatized, re-traumatizing yourself, like ending up in these situations where you feel like you're fully reliving and returning to these really like chaotic, disorganized, like emotionally extreme parts of yourself. And then that kind of gets tucked away and then you have to go back to like work and act like things are normal. Um, yes, that experience, is that kind of a good... That's exactly right. I mean, and, and you, use the, you use the word orienting and we have to also remember that those parts are actually oriented in the past they don't have present orientation so that's a huge piece and this is a huge part of how EMDR helps too is because EMDR is really big on helping the nervous system time stamp those things Hmm. orient the part orient the experience in its correct time so that it can be filed away so that remember what we want is we want to be able to say that was then and this is now Right. Yeah. And sometimes we might even have like in, in therapy rooms, sometimes, sometimes we might be even dealing with a part that, you know, right here in the therapy room, that is the terrified, you know, seven-year-old and we might need to stand up and measure our height on the door so that this part of us is seeing you know, they can't see you. I am, I'm five foot seven now. Right. Look at how tall my, my head is on the door. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, these are the kinds of things that we might help and help parts kind of realize in the therapy room in yeah. terms of time, time orientation. Yeah. But yes, you're, I mean, yeah, you're, we're totally in, in think and, and how we're understanding this. Yes. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And for me, learning about structural dissociation was huge too, because I had never heard that really described as a symptom of CPTSD before and combined with like the polyvagal theory and the attachment theory, those three things really together, I was like, ah, oh, it's all starting to like make sense. Yeah. It's all like fitting yeah. together. Um, but it can be so uncomfortable, like the the feeling of being fragmented. And like, I think that's why so many people with CPTSD struggle with their identity or feelings mm-hmm. like they're scared that they don't really know who they are. Um, and it, and it really goes along with like that attachment stuff too, right? Because what you're talking about is like not being oriented to which time you're in. And so Mm -hmm. when you, when you have like a insecure attachment style, would you say that that is in a certain way, like, um, being oriented in the past, like you're in your attachment relationships, right? Yes, because, and, and this is a, another piece of it, like where, uh, and the sense of self comes into this too, because remember when we have those, those needs that weren't met, we don't have that strong sense of who we are because we don't have our caregiver mirroring back who we are. Um, but the ways that we show up in our relationship and the behaviors that come out in our relationship, they're habituated behaviors. Right. They're, they're, they're things that, that are coming from the past. If I'm a if I may, for example, if I had the anxious ad- adaptation and I noticed that my partner is withdrawing from me, I may um, pursue and, and become critical, but that behavior, that's not how I want to be. That's not how, I, that's not a spontaneous right. um, behavior that's present focused. That is a habituated experience from the past coming up in my present. So yeah. absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, totally makes sense. Um, and so- we want when, and when we do this attachment focused work, we help, we help that to become healed. We help again, you know, we help the person be able to say what's past is past and what's present is present. 
Yeah, yeah. Which is what I think a lot of the nervous system regulation and, and polyvagal stuff relies on too, is like relearning yes. how to feel safe in the moment. Um, right. How to, because, you know, through trauma, our neuroception is like skewed, which is our, our neuroception being like our brain's ability to interpret stimulus as either safe or unsafe. And I, I was right. just reading research recently about how like um, it was about OCD, actually, but it applies to a whole bunch of other stuff about how some people's brains, the neuroception is skewed. So they are they are just less likely to target or to label stimulus as safe, more likely to label it as unsafe. And once right. stimulus has been labeled as unsafe, they have a harder time feeling safe again after that. Like it just they just right. get There's, stuck in that it's, state because it's evidence. Yeah, it's, it's evidence. They have this box of evidence. And that evidence tells them that, you know, this is actually true. This is actually not safe. And that's why we, we need, um, we need disconfirming experience, lot, lots of them in yeah. order to create new evidence. But you know what, one of the things that you said that I, I do want to help people because some people will say, well, I never feel safe. You know, how am I supposed to do EMDR? I never feel safe. You know what? We need to create safe enough. Mm. Can we have safe enough where we can begin to do this work? Because sometimes just starting this work and trauma processing has a stabilization effect and has an effect where you can experience the full felt sense of safety. So can yeah. you feel safe enough? I love that. I love that too. I've also heard that as secure enough when talking about like the process of yes. um, like earning secure attachment and how we have to practice yeah. by having secure bases. And some people will be like, oh, like, mm -hmm. but what is that? It's like secure doesn't mean perfect, right? It just means secure enough, right. like consistent enough that you can like start practicing. That's right. So what would safe enough mean um, in the context of being able to start working on trauma? Well, I would say, am I of course we want to make sure that, am I in the window of tolerance? Like maybe I'm sort of at, at that, at that very edge of, of over, but I'm not overshooting it. Right. But, but I'm not in that, you know, I, I like the window of tolerance. I also like Dan Siegel and how he talks about like the river of well being. Like maybe I'm floating in the center of the river, but I'm slowly creeping towards one of the banks of, of, of um, distress or whatnot, but I'm not completely there. And so it's, it's not a sense of, of perfect, safety but it's safe enough yeah 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 I always like ask people to just think of like one time or one place that they can kind of recall feeling that sense of like safety and relaxation just to remember that like their body is capable of it that like it exists somewhere yeah. because you know if you if you do spend most of your life in like a fight flight or free state which a lot of us have with CPTSD for years I think I was in a flight state for like years like but right, even in right. those years of being in a flight state like 99% of the time I can pick like a few specific times and places that I got a little taste of like calm or peace or like safety yeah. and maybe it didn't last very long and maybe it was fleeting mm -hmm. but it's like that can still be really helpful I think to identify just to kind of be like okay like my body does have the tools to feel safe mm -hmm. and I just have to like regain my access to like yeah. that that ability right and one of the things that I love and I don't know how we are in time but like about that is where where EMDR views things, but also you know one of the other modalities that I'm that I'm trained in and um, and that I have that I'm actually working on becoming a um, practitioner is somatic experiencing, and it it says that we have 
this natural resilience. We are wired for this and we can rely on our nervous systems to have a natural flow. Um, we want to move from fixity to flow. And then, and then EMDR believes through this adaptive information processing system that we are wired for that. We're wired like polyvagal theory for connection. Yeah. But it's through these trauma experiences that we become wired for self-protection. Right. And so if we can remember that what our, if we can remember that our, our, our natural wiring is resiliency, like that's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a really like hopeful way for it is for thinking about these things especially for people who have felt like I'm broken for a long time which I think is a belief that a lot of people with CPTSD carry especially if you've been in therapy for like years and years and not gotten Mm -hmm. the help you need so I think that's that's really gonna be good for a lot of people to hear um, yeah, we're we're a little short on time, but I just have a couple more questions that I want to ask you. Um, so what would your advice be to people who are like, okay, like, I think I might want to do EMDR. Um, how, how can someone know, I guess, I guess I would say, how can someone know if they're ready for EMDR? Like, are there people that you would say in certain situations or states, it would, EMDR would not be the right therapy? Um, or can mm-hmm. anyone... Can anyone start EMDR at any time with the right practitioner? Well, I, I mean, we're certainly going to do that in, in the, the, fa- the first phase of EMDR. We're going to, you know, kind of judge whether or not somebody is appropriate and we're looking at their current functioning. We're looking at um, um, any like organic medical kind of stuff. We're also looking at like, are, are they using substances, for example? So there's things, there are, there are things that we're looking at, but in general, yeah, I mean, EMDR is pretty much a readily available and something that most people can use. Yeah. Um, and I would definitely say that if you have complex trauma, for example, you're going to want to find a clinician that's either really well-trained, hopefully certified, Um, or if they're not certified that they're trained and they're under supervision and it's okay to ask these questions are, do you get regular supervision? Um, uh, and how long have you been practicing and what are your advanced trainings? Um, you know, because somebody can be trained, but they maybe haven't done any advanced trainings. Um, and so asking those questions are, is really, really important. And then asking too, like, you know, what is the what's the population that you usually work with? Do you work with, I'm probably not going to go to somebody if I'm an adult that only regularly works with children. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, asking those questions that we might think are simple, but that are really important and writing those down and, and bringing those to the table when we're interviewing yeah. um, a, a therapist. And remember that you are there to choose. You get to choose, hopefully, give, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to sound, I know that some people um, might not have access, um, but, you know, there's other things that you could be doing too. Like some people say, well, I can't, you know, limit, I have limitations and whatnot. I love some, some home uh, options. Like Laurel Parnell has a book called Tapping In. She has tons of resources on YouTube for utilizing bilateral stimulation to help you with resource building. Um, I know. I love that kind of stuff. Of of course, that's not EMDR therapy, but um, that's something that can help you with your nervous system. Yeah. Um, So I would say on the whole, like for the most part, yeah, you're, you're, you're probably, you're, you're probably um, 
you know, EMDR is probably an option for you for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. But we're going to, we're definitely going to do that assessment or, the, or we're going to do the, the, the phase one, the history, the, the assessing for dissociation, all that stuff in the beginning to make yeah. sure. And I, I always say interview your therapist too. Like that's such a big deal. I think especially like, cause so many of the people with complex trauma um, seeking therapists have like a fawn response. And so they have a hard yes. time being assertive in the process of finding a therapist, especially yeah. because therapists have this like, you know, kind of authoritative, you know, I'm a professional position or whatever. And so it can be hard, but I'm always encouraging people to like get a list of like five therapists that you think you might be interested, mm -hmm. call them, ask them questions, ask them if they, you know, Know, what do they know about complex trauma how do they work with complex right. trauma like you are right. there to get a service and you you have every every right to advocate for yourself and to ask those questions and if a therapist is iffy about you asking all those questions then that's how you know it's not the right therapist so. <laughs> exactly and utilize you know if you're not comfortable with doing it over the phone or whatnot utilize email yeah put, put totally. these requests or put these and put these questions in an email I mean totally. absolutely yeah mm -hmm. awesome um, do you have, uh, anything that you can say that is like, I don't want to put, put too much pressure on it by saying the biggest thing you've learned, but a big thing that you've learned, um, in, in all of your years as a therapist about, about anything about attachment, about trauma, what's something that, that you learned that really was like an aha moment for you or has informed your, your work since. Mm. Yeah, that's like pressure time you can also I mean, take I a minute to, <laughs> no rush yeah I mean I hate to go back to it but like it kind of what we were talking about before but you know this in the beginning in the beginnings of my um work as a therapist you know I worked with the medical model you know I was um I started out in you know community mental health and I was also in the hospital system in the beginning of my career and so much of it was the medical model and it wasn't until I happened upon this trauma-informed lens that and I know we talked about it before but just this idea that oh my gosh maybe it's not some kind of diagnosis maybe it's the person doing the best that they can and having creative manifestations of, of, of ways that their system is working through. Yeah. And, and then putting that back on myself, um, you know, cause I'm in long-term recovery from eating disorder and, um, you know, being able to look at myself through that lens for that, just that particular issue. And some of my childhood trauma experiences, it's like, whoa, that was yeah. enough to make me really you know, I thought I was on fire in the beginning of my um, years as a therapist. I, that, it was all over after that. I mean, I just became completely on fire and really wanted to take this and run with it and get out of that, that um, you know, the, the agency setting and get into private practice and really work with those people that I wanted to work with. Yeah, yeah. And the medical model, I think, is... Uh, more of that like pathologizing or comes with right. more of a pathologizing mindset a lot right. of the time that's like you have this thing and this thing is wrong and right, um, right. instead of being like this thing is functional and yeah uh, adaptive. And, I'm grateful. I'm, and I'm grateful for all of my experience I'm it's it's shaped me I'm grateful for all that but I definitely yeah. also learned what my niche is and where I want to be and yeah. the people I want to work with and how I want to continue to grow and what I want to spend my time learning on so, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was so fascinating. <laughs> I just got to nerd out with you about like all of my favorite topics. So I'm so glad that you came on the podcast. It was so fun. Thank you so we much. We totally nerded out and yes. I'm down to nerd out anytime. <laughs> yes, this was so awesome. And um, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Um, if you are listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. I think I already said that. Um, or if you're listening on my Patreon on my uh, like Apple podcast or Spotify, if you can subscribe, that helps me out a lot. And um, yeah, stay tuned for a new episode every Wednesday. Thanks.